Good morning. My name is Rosalind Higgins. I am the former president of the International Court of Justice and a great supporter of this project. I'm going to talk to you this morning on a rather unusual topic. I'd like to speak to you about what courts may and may not do and what judges may and may not do. Now, every court has its statute, its rules, its case law. But if the parties appearing before it are to have confidence that their treatment will be the same as that afforded to their opponents, that the judges are decent people whose decisions are to be respected, there has to be more. And it's that more that is the subject of this lecture. What are the things that a court must do, or refrain from doing, to ensure the equality of the parties? And what constraints are there upon individual judges who together will decide the case? And that, rather than case law, statute, rules, is what I wish to talk about today. I'll use the International Court as my template and we'll look at the court and its judges. So let us begin with some things that the court itself should and should not be doing. First, the court uh, must, of its own volition, always ensure when dealing with a case before it, that there is compatibility with the obligations of its own statute. That's referred to as its duties to act ex officio. In the world we live in, the consent of parties plays a significant role in the practice of the court. Many things will be possible if the parties agree them between themselves. However, there are limits to what can be achieved by consent. And first and foremost, the court is the guardian of its statute and must, ex officio, always have regard to matters being compatible with the statute. Any incompatibility with the statute cannot be repaired by agreement of the parties. And as the court clearly stated, in a case where both of the litigating parties had an interest in proceeding with the case pending, the court said the question is whether, as a matter of law, Serbia and Montenegro was entitled to seize the court as a party to the statute at the time when it instituted proceedings to that case. Since that question is independent of the views or wishes of the parties, even if they were now to have arrived at a shared view on the point, the court would not have to accept that view as necessarily the correct one. The second point, the court is entitled 
to act proprio motu, so it must act ex officio to ensure compatibility with the statute, and it may act proprio motu. So that means that the court can always itself take action of its own initiative and indeed is not restricted by the argument of the parties in ascertaining the relevant ground for its findings. It best knows the law, uh, and this is widely referred to as the court's discretion to act a proprio motu. There is an attendant problem, however. Although the court may always decide a matter proprio moti, it is not equitable or desirable that this should be done without the parties having had an opportunity to plead on the point thought of as of particular importance by the court. The court is well aware of the tightrope it has to walk, and some help is offered by the provision of Article 61.1 of the rules, which says the court may at any time prior to or during the hearing indicate any points or issues to which it would like the parties specially to address themselves. The balancing of the court's entitlement to choose its grounds and fairness to the parties arose in a particularly interesting fashion in two cases. After the close of oral proceedings, in the case brought by Bosnia and Herzegovina against Serbia and Montenegro, the National Assembly of Montenegro declared on 3rd of June 2006 its independence. Now, what were the implications of that for the case? The court had its own ideas as to what should follow. Of course, Serbia and Montenegro were joint respondents. But nonetheless, the court correctly asked the agent of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the agent of Serbia and Montenegro, and the new foreign minister of Montenegro to communicate their views on this matter to the court. The court, uh, acting under its duty to ensure compatibility with the statute, which I've already mentioned, already perceived in a different case uh, that even in that circumstance, equality between the parties might require that they be given an opportunity to comment on a troublesome point. So it was by letters of the 6th of May 2008 to the parties of, in the Croatia versus Serbia case of 2008, that they were asked to address during the hearings the, I'm quoting now, the issue of the capacity of the respondent to participate in proceedings before the court at the time of the filing of the application, given the fact that the issue had not been addressed in the written proceedings. This had in fact only become a live issue since the lodging of the written proceedings. The capacity to participate in proceedings is laid down in Article 35 of the statute, which essentially provides that the court shall be open to states if their members 
of the UN or for non-members on the basis of conditions laid down by the Security Council, and here comes the important point, subject to the special provisions contained in treaties in force. So the article and the question whether the Genocide Convention was a treaty in force had played a critical role in the reasoning of the court in the 2004 legality of the use of force cases. While both the applicant and the respondent in Croatia versus Serbia had hoped that the question of Article 35 of the statute could be ignored, the court had ex officio decided to examine it and as a matter of propriety needed to hear the views of the parties. Special acknowledgement of the court's possible need to act proprio motu arises often in the context of provisional measures. Article 41 of the statute provides both for the court's entitlement to indicate, if it thinks necessary, any provisional measures needed to preserve the respective rights of either party and for the notification of the measures suggested to the parties. And this is echoed in Article 75, one of the rules which says, in turn, the court may at any time decide to examine proprio motu whether the circumstances of the case require the indication of provisional measures which ought to be taken or complied with by any or all of the parties. So the court is endowed with ample flexibility to act a proprio uh, motu. The next topic is one relating to whether the court may only decide what it has been asked to decide, and that is the ultra petita principle. So the court may decide matters on the grounds it thinks relevant, but in so doing it will uh, display a certain sense, often, of what it perceives as the real applicable law. To give an example, it did not choose to answer the issue of the legality of nuclear weapons when that issue was before it by relying on the right to life principle in the UN Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. There was much other that was more at the heart of the matter. But there's a further constraint upon the court's entitlement to act proprio motu, and that is that it must not base its judgment or decide issues which the parties have not sought to have determined. A clear statement of that principle is to be found in the 1950 um, asylum uh, case. In the oil platforms case, 2003, in my view, the court clearly went beyond the final submissions of the parties. That's the usual test for identifying what is and is not infra pratita and made findings under Article 
21D of the US-Iran Treaty of Amity. And the court said that it thought it desirable that a certain matter should be decided. But that does not render the matter infra petita for purposes of the dispositive. By contrast, the court, what the court may do and often does is to limit reference to other matters that are not infraprotita uh, to its reasoning. There it's perfectly appropriate for the court to include comment on such matters. Next, the court must dis ensure that a party always has the opportunity to respond to contentions made by the other side. This is part of there being equality between the parties and it's less easy to guarantee than one might suppose. Usually the courts have equal rounds of pleadings, a memorial and counter-memorial and perhaps also a reply and a rejoinder. At some point the competing contentions have to come to an end but there is equality between the parties. Any uh, written reply by a party to a question put by the court or evidence or explanation submitted by a party under Article 6 of the rules and received after the closure of procedures is always submitted to the other side. That's part of the equality of the parties. And the same is true of requests for late documents by reference to the normal period for the submission of uh, written uh, documents. But a more general duty falls upon the President, namely to ensure that during the oral pleadings, one party is not put at a disadvantage by the other. This may happen, and sometimes does, when in an oral pleading, the party last speaking brings up a new point. Having no further opportunity to speak, the other side has obviously been put at a disadvantage. And this is to be controlled by the president intervening to say that a new argument may not be introduced at that stage. And the court also has had to make it clear that agents speaking at the very end of pleadings may not introduce any new issues. Sometimes there is an overt attempt to introduce a late document during oral pleadings rather than a new argument in the very last round of pleadings. Problems have arisen over the fact that a document which is not in the written proceedings is sometimes sought to be introduced during the course of oral arguments on the ground that it is a publication readily available in any case. And in the light of controversy and practical problems over this, the court has introduced two practice directions to provide clarity 
and to control abuse of Article 56.4 of the rules. And I'm referring here to practice directions 9 bis and 9 ter, and constant vigilance is necessary. Well, I've mentioned some things about the court, and now I'm going to say some things about the judges themselves and what they may and uh, may not uh, do. A judge must always be courteous towards his or her colleagues. Any disagreement on the law should be expressed in respectful terms. A judge should not, in my view, publicly criticise the court in which he or she serves. Criticism by scholars before joining the court is not at all abnormal. But once a member, no public criticism should occur, in, including, uh, in, in my view, um, at uh, lectures, conferences, or anything of the sort. The disagreement should be limited to discussion and debate in privacy within the court. Now, in recent years, there have been efforts to develop guidelines on international judicial uh, conduct. In 2004, the International Law Association adopted what have come to be referred to as the Berg House Principles on the Independence of the International Judiciary. And in 2011, the Institut de droit international passed a resolution on the position of the international judge. And although these instruments are non-binding, they have been developed in close consultation with international judges and the most senior international lawyers and can be said to represent in large part best practice. Even with these guidelines fleshing out the rules in the court statute and other documents, there are still many questions left unanswered that arise in real life as to what a judge may or may not do, and I'll now turn to some concrete examples. So I start with uh, what I'll call specific incompatibilities, uh, judicial involvement or not in a particular case. When a dispute is brought to the court, there are circumstances in which a judge should not sit on the case. The clearest situation is where he or she has previously been involved in the subject matter of the case. Article 17 of the statute sets out the rule, and I'm now quoting for a moment, no member may participate in the decision of any case in which his previously taken part as agent, counsel, or advocate for one of the parties, or as a member of a national or international court, or of a commission of inquiry, or in any other capacity. Now, any doubt on that point is to be settled by a decision of the court. And in the early years of the international court, there were some doubtful cases where a judge participated in a case, even though he'd had some prior involvement but there was no collective decision by the court. 
So the US and French judges sat in the 1952 case of rights of nationals of the United States of America in Morocco, even though each had been legal advisor to his foreign ministry when the dispute was being addressed at the diplomatic level. In 1951, in the Fisheries case, United Kingdom against Norway, Judge Kleistad sat despite the fact that he'd been a member of the Supreme Court of Norway when it, it had ruled on a key aspect of the case. In recent years, judges have been more ready to recuse themselves on the basis of prior involvement. The year that I joined uh, the court, I recused myself from the Lockerbie cases, having previously acted as counsel for the United Kingdom in an earlier phase of the case. And near the end of my term in 2008, I recused myself from the Malaysia versus Singapore case because when I'd been a barrister, I'd given advice to one of the parties about matters arising in that controversy. Judge Simmer, who'd been a prominent professor in Germany, had advised governments in relation to several disputes and recused himself from Liechtenstein versus Germany, Romania versus Ukraine, and legality of the use of force case brought by Serbia against the NATO countries. And similarly, Judge Abraham, who'd been director of legal affairs at the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, recused himself from the Djibouti versus France case. But what if a judge has not had prior involvement in a dispute, but nonetheless feels that he or she should not participate in a case? This more indeterminate situation is addressed in Article 24 of the Court Statute, which says, I'm quoting, if for some special reason a member of the court considers that he should not take part in a decision in a particular case, he shall so inform the president. And if the judge does not himself or herself take this initiative, the president may notify that it would not be appropriate to sit on the case. And if the judge and president can't agree, the matter is settled by the decision of the court and it very rarely reaches the point where the president or plenary uh, must intervene. The tendency has been for judges to act cautiously and in delicate situations to decline to participate in a case. So in the 1996 case on preliminary objections in the Bosnia uh, genocide case, both Judge Fleischer and I decided to recuse ourselves because we each had previously dealt with different matters uh, material to this phase of the case. He as legal counsel of the United Nations and I as a former member of the United Nations Human Rights uh, Committee. In the 2007 phase of the genocide case, Judge Bergenthal recused himself as the chairman, uh, as he'd been chairman of the Holocaust Committee on Conscience, and he didn't feel it was appropriate for him to participate. 
Judge Simmer recused himself from the Avena case between Mexico and the United States because he'd acted as counsel for Germany in the separate case of Legrand, which had dealt with similar issues. Now, Articles 17 and 24 of the statute have been complemented by a practice direction issued in 2002, which deals not with the judges, but with counsel in a case. And Practice Direction 8 provides that a person who until three years ago was a judge, judge ad hoc or senior official of the court, should not appear as counsel in a case before the court. And this cooling off period of three years, which caused great excitement at the time we introduced it, has been adopted both in the Berg principles and in the Institute resolution. What happens if a judge doesn't see any problem with sitting on a case, nor initially do his colleagues, but a party to the case does? When the court commenced proceedings in the advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the construction of wall in the occupied Palestine territory, Israel sent a letter to the court objecting to Judge El Arabi's participation asserting, among other things, that he'd played a leading role as a diplomatic representative of Egypt in the General Assembly emergency special session from which the advisory opinion request had emerged. And Israel also pointed out that Judge Larabi had expressed his views on questions concerning Israel in an interview with an Egyptian newspaper. The court carefully considered these issues and gave a reasoned order, which it decided by 13 votes to one, that Judge El Arabi should not be precluded from participating in the case. And the court pointed out that the question of uh, the wall was not an issue in the emergency special session until after Judge El Arabi had ceased to participate as Egypt's representative and that in the newspaper interview he'd given, he hadn't expressed an opinion on the question put in the present case. Now, judges at the International Court should keep a proper distance from their own governments. Of course, cordial relations don't have to be cut off, but the judge must tread a careful line. Unusual issues can arrive. Judge Greenwood and I have both in the past responded affirmatively to a request from the United Kingdom to spend a day or two assisting in the selection of a new legal advisor to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And in a recent arbitration, a tribunal has found after a meticulous examination of all the relevant rules that that in no way infringes the status or impartiality of an international judge. If a judge does sit in a case, another ethical question is what contact he or she may have before or during the case with counsel for the parties. Now, in some ways, the world of international law is rather small. Members of the international bar are well known to judges and they are often friends. 
counsel and judges, our colleagues in various professional bodies. This question of social contact is addressed neither in the statute nor in the rules. It's largely a matter of good sense. And the international court practice is that for any social event offered uh, by judges during the course of a case, where lunches or receptions are often given, counsel from both parties are to be present and judges should take care never to be alone with representatives of one of the parties even after the case and while the court is still uh, deliberating. Now let me say something about what I'll call broad incompatibilities and this will be my last topic. So I'm talking here about the status of the judge, the more abstract question of the extent to which he or she may engage in secondary work or external activities. There is a basic rule in Article 16 of the court statute which says, no member of the court may exercise any political or administrative function or engage in any other occupation of a professional nature. Now once again, this provision has been copied by other international courts and adopted in the Berghaus principles. It can be a challenging rule to apply because some courts, such as the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea and the International Criminal Court, in, still now in its early years, can only offer judge, judges part-time work. They're not there full-time working every single day. And in some circumstances, such a total prohibition may seem unreasonable. Moreover, there's been a long practice of judges of the International Court and the Permanent Court before that, uh, that serving on arbitral tribunals is regarded as compatible with Article 16 of this statute. And I may also add judges who come from an academic background may wish to maintain contacts with their university. Where is the line to be drawn in that? Now, these issues have been closely examined at the recent meeting of the Institut de Droit International, and I believe that its 2011 resolution reflects the best practice in this area. It provides, and I'm quoting here, that uh, should judges engage in any external activity, such as teaching or arbitration, they shall afford absolute priority to the work of the international court or tribunal to which they belong. Moreover, they may not engage in any activity capable of impinging on their independence or susceptible of raising doubts on their impartiality in a given case. That's Article 3, Paragraph 3. And then it goes on, moreover, I'm quoting again, it is undesirable for judges serving in courts with a heavy workload to engage in arbitration or substantial teaching activities. Article 3, Paragraph 4. And it goes without saying that today 
the International Court has a very heavy workload indeed. So the Institute resolution can be readily understood to mean that judges may certainly participate in academic conferences, deliver an occasional lecture, write an article for a law journal, but they should not accept professorial chairs. But the question of arbitration and the judge is more complicated. In principle, arbitration is not incompatible with the functions of an international judge so long as the work of the court comes first. But there are many other questions. Should a judge only participate in interstate arbitrations? I've always felt that any arbitration a judge might wish to do should only be in that category. That both limits the frequency of arbitrations and stays close to the international court's uh, subject matter. Should judges limit themselves to participating in arbitrations that concern international law? My answer to that is affirmative. It's difficult to develop crystal clear rules on external activities because there are so many variables. What's needed above all is a precision, a procedure for decision making on a case by case method. And the court has such a procedure codified in a 1996 directive, which has since been adopted in the Institute resolution I've just referred to. So in considering whether an external activity is compatible with the judicial role a judge shall, before accepting such an invitation, consult with the president who, if he or she sees a need, will consult the plenary court. And if the activity concerns the president, then he or she goes directly to the plenary. I should add the work of a president is so extraordinarily heavy that that is pretty much a, a theoretical proposition presidents simply do not have the time to do anything other than uh, their court uh, duties. Well, I very much hope that this survey of seemingly unrelated little topics on what the court may do or may not do, on what a judge may do or may not do, can now be seen all actually to belong to the larger theme of uh, protecting the equality of the parties and the reputation of the court. And I hope that these points may be of interest.